Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got some wonderful energy and resources with us today for Spirit in Action. Back in 2020, I did a couple interviews about something called the Busseum with Michael Lewick Troms, and the Busseum is again passing this way currently, but with a very important twist, because while the previous exhibits have been primarily historically focused, this year's display is about climate change talking about what is happening and how we can address the impending crisis rolling our way. Also, the staff of volunteers for this tour includes a number of Michael students from the University of Erfurt, Thuringia, in the middle of Germany. There are a couple interesting excerpts on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website that don't fit into this broadcast. Right now, we'll be speaking to Jonah Kaiser, Katerina Herz, and Faye Telemann about the Heartlands Future exhibit on the Basseum as the three of them join us via Zoom from their current location in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. How wonderful to have all three of you here today for Spirit in Action. Jonah, Katerina, and Faye, welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much. I understand, Faye, that you just arrived with the project in the United States. How long are you going to be here? Yes, it's my first day of work here in the United States, and I will be here until the end of June, until the end of the project. And Katarina, how long is your plan for? I will also stay until the end of June, right along with Faye. <laughs> and Jonah? Same thing for me. I'm just going to help Michael to drop off our bus, our busseum in Spencer, and then fly out on 3rd of July. Are there other people coming in by days? I know there were some 30 involved in creating this project. Yeah, so now we've had 12 people come over in total, but we are the last people of the set. So after us, the tour for this year will be completed and there will be nobody coming in. I've interviewed Michael before about the Basseum and the displays that it's done. This one seems to be somewhat different, the Heartland's future. Was there a special thought about what this Basseum project would be about? Is it different than the others, or am I making that up? The past exhibits have been about social history exclusively. They've dealt with things that lay in the past, but with climate change being the biggest challenge that we have right now that also traverses time and nations is what we report and Michael agreed that this is the one topic that we all need to talk about. So he didn't feel comfortable anymore only talking about the past. He also wanted to get the future on board of the bus. And that's what we did with the second exhibition now on the outside of the bus. Now, all three of you have been Michael Lewick Tom's students previously, maybe still are. So what are your degrees of study? You explained this, a little bit of this to me earlier this past weekend when I was talking to you at Northern Yearly Meeting Session. So, Katerina, what about you? Are you a history major? Are you? A, how can you be working on this? Well, the great thing, well, the bad thing about climate change is that it affects everything. The good thing is about, about it is though that then everybody can be part of the conversation. I actually study English and communication. So there is some angle, some connection there, definitely. But I also think that everybody should be talking about it right now. What about you, Faye? I study international relations and philosophy. 
And I understand that this course, though, counts as some kind of a required extracurricular, or I, I don't know how this works. What do they do at your university? confusing. We have a major and a minor, and then we have a third study subject that is just called interdisciplinary studies. So that is a very small part of our bachelor, but we are actually required to find courses that are not directly related to our field of study, but that might be related to what we want to do in the future. So museum work, for example, or working in, in international organizations, or in your case, uh, journalism. The bus tour is part of our interdisciplinary study requirements. So more or less like an internship, you could say. Did you sign up for this particular course that Michael was teaching? And I could say Dr. Michael Lewick-Troms, but that Michael is how I met him 35, 40 years ago. Did you sign up for this because of the Buseum and the approach teaching people? Or was it specifically climate change that led you into this course? For me, it was a little bit of both. I just thought the uh, idea is super interesting. So I wanted to, to try it out. And then I met Michael. I went to the first class and uh, I was very excited about it. And then I asked Kata if she already has for this semester a course like that. And she was like, no, of course and I didn't. I don't think another course like this actually exists. So it felt like this kind of, <laughs> yeah, if it sounds crazy enough. I have to try it and see what it's all about. <laughs> Could you explain a little bit about your university? I've not heard of it before meeting Michael. I mean, he's originally, you know, from Iowa, but living over there in Germany for so many years. He's teaching, I'm assuming, in German. Well, his class is in English. He also speaks German, but uh, it's usually easier for everybody to just switch into English. So we, we sometimes mix around a little bit, but we have both German and English classes or courses available at our university. About our university in general, it's actually one of the oldest uh, universities in Germany, if not the oldest. There's a little bit of about that with another university, but of course, we we're pushing the University of Erfurt propaganda, so no follow up questions. <laughs> I would say it's it's at the same time the youngest and the oldest university in Germany, actually, because it, there was a breakage period around the reunification of Germany, where there was not a university per se. But and before it was you could become a teacher and you had like special studies, but it was not a general university. But also Martin Luther studied in that university. Yes. So very yeah. old and very young at the same time. Yes. And that is our biggest claim to fame. I think that's where Martin Luther also studied. And now we do. <laughs> wow. So that goes back quite a few years. Right. And none of you look nearly that old. <laughs> what was the title of the course? It was Heartland's Future, actually, which now also became the title of our climate change exhibit. And so it was clearly focused from the beginning on the United States Heartland, not Germany's Heartland, right? Exactly, because the bus, the Basium, this mobile exhibit, it lives in Spencer, Iowa. So it was always clear that whatever we were doing, it would be something focused on the Midwest. There is another beer Basium in Germany, actually, uh, that also drives through Thuringia. And is about history and about the system changes, especially in Eastern Germany, because it was very special. But yeah, we didn't focus on that museum, but we still focused on the one here stationed in the United States. What I really want to talk to you about is climate change. And evidently, this issue was important enough that it motivated all three of you to be part of this course, along with some 20-some plus more people. What drew you to the issue of climate change, either of you? Do you want to start, perhaps, Katarina? I think all of us, we all grew up with this issue and we all, I think in the younger generation, we all feel that there's a lot of talk happening, but not enough action is being taken. 
And that is, for us, it's just a very anxiety-inducing situation, of course. So we, I think a lot of young people have the need to talk about it and to actually do something in order to feel some sort of hope and in order to be able to move forward to fight another day, basically. So it is a very, like, I think it's the most important issue that our generation and any generation after us will have to face. So that was my main motivator. And what about you, Faye? Same here, I'd say. Just a very important topic that I always care about. I started uh, very young when I was like 14 or 15 to uh, work with Greenpeace, a youth organization actually, and kind of started from there. And then I just figured it's still a very important topic and we need to talk about it. And yeah, actually, Kata and I actually also moved in together at some point with the idea of having an apartment that is as sustainable as possible, uh, especially as young students who don't have a lot of money. <laughs> so we cannot afford a lot of sustainable or always the newest and best and greenest appliances, for example. So how can we manage to live sustainably as students, as young people? That was kind of our goal. One of the things I've read along the way, and I had no personal connection to Greenpeace myself, but I understand it was actually started by Quakers along the way. I don't know if you were aware of that history of Greenpeace. Quakers have been instrumental in a lot because we have such a long history of there's no such thing as faith separate from action, I guess you'd say. And so many of the founders, I guess, of Greenpeace were Quakers or, and motivated out of that field. But in any case, you maybe didn't know that, huh, Faye? I didn't, but I mean, it was very interesting information, definitely. I would love like seeing these connections because the Society of Friends is not very visible in Germany at all. I think at the Northern Yearly Meeting, I found out that there are apparently some 400, 500 Quakers in Germany, but I've actually never met one. So all of this world is very new to me. Yeah, and it's fascinating at how many important issues Quakers were actually in right at the table. So that was very interesting. Well, let's talk about the bus. Could one of you explain generally how the bus works? Yeah, so it's a retrofitted school bus. In the inside, we have the historical exhibit that you already talked with Michael about. And then in the back of the bus, we have a little movie auditorium. And then behind the scenes in a little compartment at the very back of the bus, there's also a little sleeping cabin for whoever needs to camp out in the bus. And then there's a lot of space on the outside of the bus as well. And that's where our climate change exhibit comes in. Our climate change exhibit goes on along the outside of the bus on panels that are removable from when we, when we drive around with the bus. And then we set it up again once we are at the showing site. Could you talk a little bit about the touring of the bus? How long are your tours in general? How many, how long have you been doing this? Jonah, do you know that? I know that Michael has been on tour with the bus since many, many years. I think he's been doing it for 20 years by now, every time with a different historical exhibit. And well, this year we are having a climate change exhibit for the first time. And the bus has been on tour since the beginning of April this year. So three months more or less until end of June. And well, we have had around, I think, 47, 38, 48 showings so far um, with around about 1,800 people visiting our bus. Touring around also is sort of hard and you sometimes get tired of it because the drives are really long. Yesterday, we drove from Rosehold, Wisconsin to the Twin Cities. And the bus can't go that fast, so it took <laughs> us about five and a half hours to get here. But yeah, it's still a great experience. You get to see a lot of the United States. I really enjoyed the views that we already had and also the views that are still about to be seen. 
And let's talk about this specific display. There's, I think, 12 panels that are part of this display. When I've been looking on the heartlandsfuture.com website, I've been boring down into the individual issues. You can go to basically subpoints and then bore into those subpoints and keep on going deeper and deeper. I understand that all of you had some part in preparing them, or maybe a few people did the primary preparing. I don't know. Is this a specialty for some of you? We started out as a group of four people who worked on that project. That is Kata, Fee, Svea, who already was here in the United States, and me. So yeah, we started out as a group of four people and have been working on the project ever since. Then after half a year, more or less, when Michael welcomed new students to his new class, our team grew. But yeah, I started working on the panels. And then I think it was around December last year, Fee, Kata, and Svea joined me in that task, but they actually had other tasks before, which they can talk about even better than I can do. Why don't you then, Fein Katarina? So we did kind of an, well, in Germany you call it an image film, like kind of a PR video type of thing about not only the Basium, but traces like the, the organization on itself and Haus der Spuren, which is a little museum of uh, Michael. And yeah, we did a little video on that for it's like two or three minutes long to just present all the different projects. So you can see that this whole project, everybody can bring something different to the table. People also learned how to do financing, fundraising, PR, social media, all of these things. There's a lot of things going on in setting up the bus tour that you don't see in the end. Yeah, so it's been a huge collaborative effort and everybody had different tasks to complete, basically. And yeah, but our main task, I would say, was the word of panels, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I think up to December, I was mostly researching on the general topics, um, which topics we would like to include and finding out some general information. And then when Kata, Fe and Svea joined the team, then the actual work began because we had to do in-depth research on every topic and we had to design the panels. And as you can imagine, climate change is a real complex matter. And it's sort of hard to fit that on a panel which is 70 on 70 inches. So yeah, we had to figure out ways how to include all important information and to make sure that the panels are not overloaded because if there's too much text or too many pictures on them, people could be scared away because just too much, you know. Yeah, so this is how we solve we solved this issue with the QR codes and with the website that you already mentioned that you can kind of dig deeper and deeper into an issue if you are interested in it. So we, we included a little QR code on each panel that will lead you then to a sort of database with our sources because those also wouldn't fit on such a small panel, of course, but also with further information and things that people can do and learn about. Um, the topic of uh, size, it's not 77 inches, sorry, 70 by 70 inches, centimeters, it's at 25, because that would be as tall as me. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> not quite that would be a very good poster, right? <laughs> True, that would have been a lot of information. That That is another issue that we definitely had when making the panels. There are a lot of things that we just uh, blind spot, European blind spots, that, for example, the inches, centimeters. So actually, another part of the panels was also people in the Midwest giving us feedback and us trying to, to change and adapt things for it to make sense for everybody on the same level, basically. 
I'm so impressed with your level of English because I'm fluent in French, but it took a lot of years. I, I mean, I lived in French and taught in French for two years before I consider myself fluent. Why is it all three of you put me to shame in terms of language abilities? That would be because you are going to delete all of our little brain freezes and brain farts out. So we sound very small. So thank you for that. <laughs> Actually, you are really good. And again, Katarina, you're studying English. I mean, this is your area, but that's not true for either you, Jonah, or Faye. Why is it your English is so good? Basically, it's very common to start English classes in elementary school. So some start from first grade on, others start from second or third grade on to learn English. And, you know, we start with those basics like children's songs. Teachers use puppets to teach colors and basic words. And yeah, then we continue throughout our whole um, middle school and high school to learn English. And also, as Europe is way smaller, everything is a little closer than um, in the United States, you also sort of have to learn other languages to be able to communicate. For example, I'm just living 45 minutes away from the French border. So you either talk English or you talk French or they talk German. So you sort of have to speak some sort of other language to communicate. Yeah, and that like one language that most people sort of learn would be English. So as soon as there's a Polish person, an Ukrainian person, a German person, we don't speak each other's languages. We speak we speak in English with each other, even though it's not our native language. And then on top of that, I think it's just all of the shows and all of the media that comes out of English-speaking countries that we, of course, want to watch as soon as possible. So if you want to watch it, you have to watch it in English, of course. So that also helps a lot, I'd say. Is that your history also, Faye, in terms of learning English? Well, I also had the advantage of actually studying in the United States for a year. I was in Pennsylvania for a student exchange, went to high school there, so that helped a lot. <laughs> Oh, okay. You're gifted that way. And again, the panels for the Climate Change Busseum exhibit are very succinct. They don't overload and burn out the brain, but they do hit the incredibly important points. And I wanted to talk about some of them. There's 12 different main topics or panels or areas of study here, I guess you maybe you'd say. So I think you probably had to study in them, gather the information, distill it down, build a hierarchy of how you can present this information. One of the topics, for instance, is agriculture. The question is, how do you deal with agriculture? I, I don't know, Jonah and Katarina, if you heard the discussion that I had with Sam, who was there as we were touring the bus. Uh, Sam has been a friend of mine since 1998. He's some 20 years younger than I am, 25 years younger, but he's an expert in so many ways, so well thought out. And his observations about what's important in terms of agriculture in the United States is a bit different than what you were displaying on the, the panel. So he, he should have actually participated in creation of it. What were the important points about climate change and agriculture that you found and that you include in the exhibit? Well, we, of course, talk about monocultures and how much of an ecological and also economic risk there are for um, farmers and the environment. With that panel, we knew that we would be in the Midwest and we thought a lot about how can we how can we talk about these issues without people raising their hackles? Is that a word? No. Hackles is the word, yes. Okay. Well, without offending people, because I mean, none of us are farmers. 
all of my family are farmers, though I'm from a dairy farm. So I know how difficult these conversations can be because it's such a personal topic for a lot of people. It's their entire livelihood. So yeah, we decided to also focus on things that people are already doing and the potential that farmers also have to also nurture the environment because they're the ones who work so closely with it. You talked in the panel about biodiversity as an important issue involved in here. How is that important in terms of climate change? Yeah, in order to have a resilient, self-sustaining ecosystem, we need biodiversity because all of the plants, all of the animals, all depends on each other. So when one link of the chain is missing, then a lot of things can collapse, of course. So I think it's just one of the most basic issues that we need to address, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we are experiencing also the problem of dying insects all over the world. There's been a decrease in bees and other insects that are really important when it comes to, I don't know what's the English term of it, but to carry over pollen from plants to other plants. So in order to have a real sustainable and well-working environment, we just have to take care of the diversity of insects as well as animals and plants because as Kata said everything is interconnected and depends on each other. So agriculture is one issue and in the United States agriculture means one thing. What does it mean in Germany where all three of you live? Is agriculture you don't have big farms like we do? Do they do the poisonous spraying which is becoming more and more common which is incredibly I think short-sighted? Are you dealing with those same issues in Germany? And because I think there's trade-offs between the two countries. Yes, we are definitely dealing with similar issues. I will have to say that a lot of the pesticides and fungicides and fertilizers that are used in the US, a lot of them are actually not allowed anymore in the European Union. So we are not looking at exactly the same issues, but definitely there are people who like most of the most of the farmland in, in Germany is conventional and we also do see how it affects the groundwater, for example. And I do think that in a lot of areas we look at similar issues. I would say that big agriculture is not a problem on the same level that it is in the US. We still have a lot more family-owned farms, smaller farms in comparison. We are consolidating. There's a lot of people who stop farming here as well. So I think it's a worldwide trend towards big ag, but not on the same level, I'd say. But still, a lot of the issues we face, uh, we face together, I'd say. And again, this is all linked to climate change. So if we don't have biodiversity, if we lose insects, how does that affect climate change? Is there a direct step, next step that goes there that makes climate and global warming happen? Well, the loss of biodiversity is one of the first signs that we have that something is not lining up right, I'd say. So I, it's more climate change causing the loss of biodiversity than biodiversity making the effect of climate change worse, I'd say. Yeah, right. and it's also related to the resilience of nature. So, for example, if we have intact forests that can survive um, crises like wildfires or droughts, then we are better equipped to counter global warming as forests absorb CO2. But if we have a huge monoculture of um, the same sort of trees and there is some sort of plague, for example, in Germany, we are dealing a lot with the bird bug. We're looking it up right now. Bark beetle. The bark beetle, yeah. Bark beetle. Okay. So an insect who's destroying a lot of trees. Exactly. So um, we do have a problem with the bark beetle because this beetle likes dry areas. And as in Germany, we are also dealing with more frequent droughts. 
this beetle feels more and more like home in German forests. And what now happens if you have a monoculture of bark trees is that they're more likely to die off due to this beetle plague. If you have biodiversity and many different trees, the forest is more likely to survive droughts and plagues like the one of the bark beetle. That makes good sense. Yeah, talking about the connection between biodiversity of insects and agriculture, I mean, most of the plants, and we have a number for that on the bus, they need to be pollinated and bees do that for us. And I think it was like 30%, but please don't quote me if I'm wrong, like for 30% of our of the food we're eating are dependent on poll being pollinated by bees. But it's a very high percentage. If we don't have that anymore, we just don't have food on our plates anymore. If we let the bees die, for example. In the U.S. this past month, we've been observing no mow May. That is to say, this month where we're not going to mow lawns, that kind of thing. And for me, that's not a hardship. That's just kind of normal, and some of my neighbors may think badly of me for it. But now it gets turned into a virtue. Is that a thing in Germany as well? They actually started doing it also in public places, in some parks, to not mow the lawn as often anymore. Of course, they're still mowing it at some point, but actually the, the lawn right next to our university, they, I think they mow it like every three months in spring, summer, and autumn. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, for example, in, in Weimar, in the, in the city park, they don't mow a part of their lawn at all anymore, but they have a herd of sheep come in and take care of the lawn that way. Yeah, and that's another, these kind of intact, biodiverse places, of course, when there's a flood, when there's a lot of water, they will be able to, to trap and um, absorb the water properly. And we will, that's another, of course, connector between biodiversity and climate change that with everything is soils, the soil is sealed everywhere. The groundwater cannot retain its water anymore. And you have more flash floods, more another connection that just came up. There will be more as, as the more we think about it because the connections are endless. We're going to go through more of the points that are part of the display of the Busseum as it tours across the U.S. for the spring and summer of 2023. But right now I want to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. The website for this tour of the Busseum is Heartlands Future heartlandsfuture.com. This is interesting because it, it, we're talking about the U.S. heartland, but today we're speaking with three of the volunteers for the project, Jonah, Katarina, and Faye, who are all from Germany, who took a course there in the university they attend with Michael Lewick Troms, who is the head of this project. You can also follow the link. I've done two interviews with Michael before. The website you would go to would be traces.org. But this is Spirit in Action, and for all of our guests for the past 18 years, you can find them on our website. You can post comments, give us feedback, suggestions. You can find the stations. There are some 35 to 45 stations across the U.S. who broadcast our program. So you can track them down there and help motivate your station to carry us as well. You can also donate. That's how our work is funded for Northern Spirit Radio. It's by you listeners who support us, not because of government and not because of corporations. And that's a key issue when we're talking about climate change as well. The community radio stations, I also want to urge that you support them because they give alternative news and music you get nowhere else. I was curious, can one of you, Jonah, Katarina, or Faye, 
comment about funding for something like the Basim. Where do you get the money for this? Is this the German government funds it, the U.S. government? Is it agencies or is it uh, the people who come and see the exhibits? How does that work? It's mostly people that come and see the exhibits and that want to support our work. We do not get any money from the um, U.S. government. In Germany, there are some state funds to support projects like that. Uh, I am not sure to which degree uh, money from these funds was used, but the majority of money came from donations from pr private people who want to to support the cause, and of course, money from visitors that donate at the bus. And I'll have to say that there are funds for NGO work, of course, in Germany, but those don't go towards the Basium in the Midwest. So it goes to the sister organization, Spuren, which is Traces in German. They go to Spuren, and we are Traces here in the Midwest, basically. So they are sisters, but not directly connected. Exactly. Yeah, I was mainly interested in this because I'm really hoping that your work is being properly funded and because it is something that needs to grow and, and get out to more people and bring consciousness even higher. Let's talk about some of the other points that are part of the display with this particular Basium tour. Transportation is one of them. And you talk about things like electrical vehicles and you talk about biofuels. And yet you've got this big old bus. It's an old school bus that travels across the United States. And as Jonah mentioned earlier, you know, when you're traveling for five hours at a time with a big vehicle, EVs, does, it doesn't work. The electrical vehicles, probably you can't carry enough power for that. Talk about what the key points on the transportation panel and its sub points. What, what are the issues there? So, yeah, as you said, right now, we are not driving an electric vehicle, unfortunately. I mean, it would be great to tour around the U.S. with an electric bus. But, I mean, as we are reliant on donations, we certainly do not have the financial potential to buy an electric bus. But, yeah, there are a lot of things that one can do in means of transportation to actually make an impact. And talking about buses... Public transit is something that comes to one's mind instantly. Now, the thing about public transit is that you can't tell people to use it if there's no offer. So we get that it is, especially in rural areas in the United States, but also in some uh, rural areas in Germany, that it's really difficult to get around without a car. But still, we can influence how many emissions we actually emit while using our car. We can, for example, create a carpool, ride with our friends, with our colleagues. Driving in a smart way helps the environment. So um, not speeding and not braking, let's say, in a overly intense way. So you have to drive smart and to know you have to know what's going on on the road in front of you to be able to actually save gas. Also, things like tire pressure and the, the sheer size of the car are factors that influence that. If you don't own horses or you don't have to use a big trailer twice or thrice a week, you might think about not getting a pickup truck, but just a smaller car instead. That already helps a lot. Yeah, that is one of the things that I definitely noticed in here being here in the US. The cars are just... They are tanks, basically, which I'm not used from our small European roads. Of course, it doesn't work as well. And a lot of people who drive them do need them for just the, 
the horsepower they provide. But a lot of people also, it seems to be a status symbol, more like. And they do use up so much more resources and space on the roads as well. So yeah, the overabundance of SUVs is definitely also something that we want to talk about in our mobile exhibit. I wanted to talk about the difference also between Germany and the U.S. Now, again, you're a much smaller country, so you don't have to drive. I mean, just last yesterday, I ended up driving a total of about six hours myself, and I was going in a vehicle that was driving much more quickly than the bus EM goes. So when you're driving long distances, the issues are somewhat different, but still, my son, who's 36, has never owned a car. What about the three of you? Is car ownership a pretty universal in Germany or is it more rare? I think as Germany also is a car country, it is quite common to own a car. I myself owned a car until I moved to Erfurt to study in the university, which also was related to the fact that I am from a small town um, where the public transit isn't as good as in urban areas. But as soon as I moved to a bigger city, I um, gave away my car because I realized I don't need it anymore. Because actually in urban areas in Germany, public transit is really good. And all of our major cities are well connected with our fast trains, which are called Intercity Express. These fast trains, they go about several hundred miles per hour and you get places really fast. I know it's a real complex issue as it is quite expensive and you have to plan it through. But fast trains are a cool option to avoid flights. So, I mean, there are trains at the East Coast, I think, in the United States. But actually, I think that people underestimate how easy and how relaxing traveling by train can be. So if there's enough demand for trains, I think it would be worth thinking about installing more train tracks, rail tracks in the United States and to connect more major cities. Amen, brother. I mean, I, <laughs> I've i traveled in France and I've never owned a vehicle in France, but traveling by public transport there is so much easier than anything I've experienced in the U.S. But my son, who's lived in Madison, Wisconsin, which is a large city, and in Brooklyn, New York, transport, why would you own a car in that environment? It just makes no sense. The only person who hasn't volunteered or either admitted that she owns a car or doesn't is Faye. You want to confess anything, Faye? I don't even have a license. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't have a car. <laughs> okay, so we've got one saint amongst the three of you. But I guess what we all have to admit is that we took a long distance flight to come here. And that is per mile the worst way of traveling at all. And if I could change one thing about the exhibit, I think I would include the negative impact that flying has for traveling. Because from Germany, it wasn't really on my mind that it would be a, like, that domestic flights would be a common thing to take, of course. But this being such a big country, of course, Sometimes it's the only option to go from A to B in a, in a good amount of time. But I feel like a lot of times also people aren't quite aware of the impact this form of travel has. So yeah, whenever you are able to take the car instead, please do. I wish we talked about that on our panels, actually. Actually, in the U.S., as of two years ago, only 8.3% of households in the United States did not have a car. And if I was to make a guess, I would say those are almost certainly urban folks who did not have their own car. Given that I live six miles outside of town, it's a little bit difficult not to have a vehicle. 
I have biked it, but it's not quite as easy here even biking as it is, I think, in Europe. In Germany, I think you have good bike paths around, bike options. Is that a reasonable thing, many places there? Yes, I mean, we are complaining about our bike paths and bike lanes, especially in Erfurt. But compared to a lot of other places, definitely, it is an essential part of any town's or village's infrastructure. We are still trying to expand it, of course, but you can get to pretty much anywhere. I mean, you've taken longer bike trips, I'd say, so you are the resident. What have you done, Faye? Well, I biked across Germany a lot. and A lot? <laughs> yeah, like it was, I think the longest trip was something around 700 kilometers. And that was very, very interesting interesting to to bike all across Germany basically from Erfurt to the French border well we did it the other way around but that was really really nice to also get a feeling for the distance that you're actually traveling because I think if you do it by car or by plane you're very quick at a new destination and you don't even really recognize that so much changed around you and I think it's a really really nice way to travel and to also do vacation because it's very relaxing for me at least to just take a bike and just keep going. Well, on a practical level, the three of you, you attending class there at Erfurt, do you bike to school? Do you public transport? How do you, how do you get to school? Or maybe you just live on campus. I don't know. Well, we used to live on campus for a bit. Then we just walked. I'm still very much a walker. You can get anywhere. You need to be within half an hour, I'd say, in Erfurt. And otherwise, there's a lot of public transport options that you can also take. And of course, students, any student city, you will recognize all of the bikes piling up on each other in every corner where you can park bikes. So a bike, I would say, is the most common way of, for students to get around. Including in winter. Including in winter. Yeah, including yeah. winter. I mean, we do not get as much ice and snow as we used to in the past, also due to climate change. So yeah, there are a lot of people that still use their bikes in winter, but there are also many people who bike in summer and use public transit in winter. Because if you have a well-working public transit system with different options, then you can get around really easily. I mean, Erfurt is a small city compared to, for example, Berlin. But even in Berlin, most of the time you get from A to B within 40 or 45 minutes because you can either take the underground or you can take the bus or you can take um, a thing called S-Bahn, which is basically a tram. Yeah, tram. Yeah. yeah, and it's also it's it's mostly also an economic factor because in our semester fees, the ticket for all of the public transit within Airport and Fringe is already included. So we feel like we've already paid for it. So of course we're going to take that public transit. Yeah. And I've actually I don't know anyone who goes to university by car because that would be throwing money out. <laughs> yeah. So we don't. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds much more intelligent than what we usually do here. But I know there's a lot of history to get you to that point, And I value it a great deal. Let's talk about food. I think food in the United States, we're such a, a dynamic culture. That is to say that we've changed rather quickly and we're more often driven by commercial things. I mean, I assume you have McDonald's all around Germany, but... I don't know if they're as common a food as they are for young people as they are here. What do we need to do in terms of dealing with food in order to prevent climate change? And, and I assume this is all represented on the heartlandsfuture.com website. What do we need to do differently about food? Any of you vegetarians, vegans? I've been vegetarian since 1976, but that makes me a very strange person in the United States. I have a feeling it's more common in Germany, perhaps. Yeah, especially among students, I would say it is very common. I eat vegetarian or vegan for basically all the time, except for when I'm back with my family on 
on a dairy farm that I will eat milk, milk. And also while traveling, it's easier to only go vegetarian and not vegan. It's a little bit harder for you. I'm kind of flexitarian, <laughs> especially I, I don't like to waste food. That's more important for me than not eating meat or yes. being strict about it. If I really crave it, then I think also my body wants it. So there's a reason behind it, but I try to reduce it as much as possible and just eat meat when I really want it. I'm trying to be mindful about my meat consumption. It's not, um, in my case, pity for the animals but more an ecological thought. So meat produces a lot of, or the production of meat produces a lot of emissions. And also it's not too healthy to eat meat every day. So I am trying to reduce that. But I think the real issue about food is actually, as Fee already mentioned, our food waste. In the US, there's approximately a share of 30 to 40% of food that ends up in um, landfills. This actually is such a sad thought because it's not only the food that ends up in the waste, but it's also all the energy you use to store the food, to produce the food, to transport it, and also all the labor that is in that food. So we're wasting a lot of resources here. And also the emissions that are produced by the food rotting in um, landfills equals more or less 42 coal-fired power plants, the annual emission of these 42 power plants. We're not just throwing away food, but we're actually also... Um, You're also damaging the climate there, right? That you're adding to the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. And I mean, there are so many smart ways to, to store food. And I think actually we're losing a lot of that somehow. For example, my grandfather, he made so much fun of me for, I didn't know that they had a basement actually, and they kind of stored their potatoes and their carrots with some soil. They just put it on. And I didn't know that. And he told me about that. And I was very surprised. And I was like, why don't we do it anymore? And it's because our, yeah, we changed our recommendations. We changed uh, a lot of stuff, but there are still so many ways, old ways that we can store food to make it actually be fresh for a very, very uh, long time. And that mm -hmm. also just it's like, it's at the end of the day, it's your own money that you're throwing away if you keep storing fruit, for example, in plastic containers. So there are really a lot of ways where you can be smart about that and help yourself. But of course, a lot of the problem, that, that is absolutely true. Once we buy it, we need to take care of it. And that's just the least what we can do to honor all of the resources and all of the work that has gone into that food. But also a lot of the food waste is also produced along the way, right? From the soil onto our plate, basically. A lot of restaurants, a lot of, and in the supply chain, a lot of things get lost. Supermarkets, because they always need to be fully stocked, of course, and everything needs to be at its most perfect at all times. And otherwise, we cannot sell it anymore. These types of things are also significantly um, contribute to the food loss that we have. And we need to help people responsible, responsible so they cannot get away with throwing all of these resources away any longer. What Faye was mentioning there about, you know, storing it in basement or in the dirt, here we call this a root cellar. I actually, when I moved to this house, which is out in the country, we have a good-sized garden and we harvest a lot of food ourselves. I, so I decided to build in a root cellar, which this house did not have. And I think if more people just did that, they would find you don't need to use electricity to keep it cool and preserve it. I mean, when we harvest our carrots from our garden, we put them in a bucket with sand 
to keep them so they stay crisp as well. And for months, then we can eat those carrots and without any refrigeration. So there's any number of ways that one could be wiser about it. I have a feeling that of necessity, Germany has needed to be more intelligent about it because you don't have all of the agricultural land that we have here in the heartland of the United States that you don't have many extra hectares per person that you can waste food on. I, is that a good or a bad interpretation of your situation there? I have no idea which portion of Germany is agricultural. I think it would be a nice thought to think that we're so much better in not wasting food, but actually also a lot of food goes to waste in Germany. You know, we might not have as much farmland as you have here in the United States, but therefore we are importing a lot of products. So the supply chains are even longer and emit even more greenhouse gases. There are some people who want to countermeasure that food waste. For example, there are people that go, um, how is it called, dumpster diving? Mm -hmm. um, sure. I've been dumpster diving, <laughs> well, mainly for wood. <laughs> so there are people who go dumpster diving in the bins of big supermarket chains. But the thing is that this is illegal in Germany. So actually, if you get caught by the police, you will get sued for that. And I think that's one thing that France, for example, does a lot better than we do, because in France, supermarkets by law are obliged to sort of reuse the food that they can't sell anymore. They have to give it away to people that need it and so on. And I think that's a good approach because just because the expiration date has passed doesn't mean that the product can't be eaten anymore. It can be consumed for probably many more days or weeks or even months. So yeah, we have to think about, as Kata already said, new food laws in order to prevent food going to waste. Again, there's eight more points that we could talk about. Are there any of them, um, neighborhoods, housing, work, fashion, nature, physical health, mental health, social justice? These are all parts of the display that travels with the Basium, and you can find the details on heartlandsfuture.com. So as the Basium travels around, are there any of these that you take particular joy or glee or happiness in talking about? Something that maybe we don't know how this is related to climate change. Maybe you, Katerina, maybe you prepared the one on fashion because you're such a fashion plate yourself that maybe that's the one you want to talk about. Which of these are of particular interest to the three of you? Oh, that's asking for that's asking a parent for their favorite child. I don't think we can really answer this question. Yeah, I'm particularly interested in where things interconnect, definitely. For example, always, of course, with, with environmental problems, it comes back to social justice. It's at its base a social justice problem. If we are able to let Earth heat up for two degrees, it will mean death and displacements for million, millions of people, not even speaking of habitat and habitat loss um, and the devastating effect it will ha have on animals and plants, of course. So, yeah, I think that's one of the topics that it always comes back to, definitely. But, yeah, we could talk about this. What about you, Faye? Is there one of those that is your pet project? Yeah, I couldn't decide for one panel, too. It would be my definitely favorite one. But I think especially like connecting to Kata with the thing about social justice and also like how we deal with the, these issues, because it was incredibly difficult to decide, oh, okay, so how do we like, it's very easy to play the blame game. And I think especially with that topic, 
it's very easy to say, oh yeah, you should do this. You know, you could be a better person and you as an individual, you cannot drive a car, you, you have to become vegetarian and so on. And it, that was very important for me to not send this message, but rather think of, oh, actually, of course, it's very important that you live a sustainable lifestyle, but you're not going to change this world. We have to change it together. And that's the point that is important because my consumption of anything is not nearly as impactful as what big corporations do. And I think that's always important to keep in mind. We are the change and we have to do it, each individual on its own, but we have to influence something bigger than us. Well said, well said, Faye. Jonah, do you have a pet favorite? I do not have a favorite because, as Kata said... Because you don't want to throw out any of your children, huh? <laughs> but I do want to mention something which I think wasn't mentioned yet, and that's mental health. Have we talked about it? We have not. Yeah, so I think that's a real important issue, a real important topic, because, of course, climate change and all the changes that happen on our planet, they have a big impact on our food, our um, life in general, They have an impact on our physical health, but also on our mental health. And I think that's something that people have to talk about more because climate change can influence your mental well-being in several ways. So obviously, if you have to move, if you get displaced because of some natural disaster, a storm, a wildfire, or anything like that, That's something that is a big burden for your mental health and your well-being. But also droughts can cause stress and anxiety and depression, especially among farmers, for example. And those are just a few examples how climate change influences the well-being of people. And there's a term called climate anxiety. It's um, especially present among young people because we know that we will have to carry the burden to live through the impacts that climate change will have. And I know a lot of people who are seriously wondering if they want to have children or not because they don't know if there's a world which is worth living in in the future. I mean, I personally think that there will be a world that will be worth living in, but that's also because I think that we should not ever lose hope. We are the majority There's studies that actually the majority of people wants to be more sustainable and wants to make a change in life. So we have to connect. We have to go out there and spread the word and be together in order to achieve, achieve something great and in order to turn around the wheel and change the course, which we are heading to right now. Just a few weeks ago, I interviewed someone named Andrew Boyd who wrote a book, I Want a Better Catastrophe because he says the science is in, there's a catastrophe coming because of climate change. And the question is, how do we make it the best catastrophe out of all the catastrophes that could happen? It's a, it's a tough thing. Are the three of you optimistic at all or pessimistic? Or I'm so grateful for your work with the Busseum and with the heartlandsfuture.com project. I'm so grateful for that, but are you personally hopeful? I see lights in your faces, but it's hard to do that when you see such darkness ahead. Definitely. I think if we didn't have any hope, we wouldn't be doing this right now. I think hope, I mean, hope not in the sense of, oh, things will turn out all right. We know that very likely things will not turn out all right. And now it's just a question of how bad it will get, how bad the catastrophe will get. 
but we mustn't lose hope as long as there are humans there's still things that we can do definitely and it's not a question of lose or win it's every single thing that we can do to stop earth from heating up just the smallest percential of a of a celsius will have a huge impact on all of life on this planet so we must never lose hope and yeah we will not lose this because there's no win or loss there's just stepping towards the better outcome and we're trying to do that in any way that we can if we give up we definitely lose and if we keep fighting we may have a chance yeah exactly so i think what you two said is true we mustn't lose hope but yet we are already experiencing the impacts of climate change so we also while fighting to get to more sustainable world we also still have to prepare for the impacts that are not reversible anymore we have to urge our governments and our cities and everybody to also prepare for the impacts i mean just have a look at the netherlands they are threatened by a lot of floods and they came up with an efficient system to protect themselves from the water so there are many areas in life where preparation comes in handy and also gives you that feeling of control. So we must fight for a more sustainable world, but we also have to acknowledge that there are some impacts that we can't reverse and we have to prepare for. Yeah. Well, I have to say that your work with the Basium gives me hope. The three of you give me hope. Again, we've been speaking with three students, uh, the founder of the Traces Project, Michael Lewick Troms. I've interviewed him before on Spirit in Action, so you can follow links from this program to him. But we've been speaking with three of his students who are volunteers as the Basium Project moves across the heartland the website to find where they're going, what their project is. And you can see just in the days coming where they will be coming into a city near you in the Midwest on heartlandsfuture.com. It's linked on northernspiritradio.org. Keep in mind that they do have some open slots still in this coming month in June that you could get on their schedule. And I think what Minnesota, where else are you going to be? We will be around the area of the Twin Cities for most of June. And we will have a short detour to Fargo in North Dakota, and we'll be in Duluth. You can contact people. Just go via the website, heartlandsfuture.com. Also on that website, you can make a donation to support this project. It's a QR code you can trace for that. But again, place to head is heartlandsfuture.com. Thank you, Jonah, Katarina, and Faye so much. Thank you for talking to us. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you so much. I only wish I could spend more time with you, go well, and keep doing such good for the world. We'll see everybody here again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh